In this episode of the Flick Lab International Film Podcast, a Chinese man has a beautiful haircut. You're gonna have a trust being like, who, huh, what, what is it good for? It's good for. It, it, it's it's good for five and a half hours of film. At least, touching on almost six hours. Yep. Woo boy, it's gonna be a longy once again tonight. Gonna have some rum tonight. Yeah. <laughs> welcome, welcome to this side of film podcast. <laughs> When it comes to creative ways of getting back to Korea, here we go, Henrik, once again. Well, I, I must say this is semi-creative way to get back into into Korea. We use a China as a proxy nation, <laughs> and technically are like, well, North Korea still is Korea. We're really getting back to our roots here. And China might be going like, well, technically the North Korea or the Korean Peninsula belongs to China, just kind of our province so let's help north korea out it's ours after all yeah Te- technically there is only true and correct and the false korea yeah uh, these are though uh, the feelings that i've got from the chinese officials behind doors towards north korea how they behave to- towards the korean peninsula it's basically ours but hey Speaking of something fun, it's coming to the 73-year anniversary of North Korea invading South Korea. Or how does it actually go? Uh, uh, actually. <clears throat> <laughs> Hooray! Happy birthday, North Korea. Yeah, June 25th, 1915. That was the glorious day of driving the pigs out of the vicinity. <laughs> yeah. Really showed the co- capitalist bastards there, now didn't your comrades. Yeah, so what better time to watch some educational videos on the matter. In in this in this podcast, in, in this event in the said podcast, there is no way forced onto us by one nation who shall not be named for security reasons. Yeah, it's kind of like a voluntary thing, just like the Chinese army in this war. Yep. But so... This is the number one film, highest-grossing film of all time in China, and part- <laughs> that says a lot about China. <laughs> at least if you're looking at the official records. And then there's a uh, part two of this movie, and that seems to be, according to Wikipedia, on the ninth most successful movie of all time. And depending on where you're getting your your statistics from, it's either the first or the third most successful movie in 2020. 22. Still, uh, when it comes to the box office difference between the two movies, part one and part two, there is a really noticeable drop. Like I know no. that the sequel usually is a is a harder sell than the first one, and I do know that basically when it comes to, for example, uh, the- movie theater box o- office performance, there is like that the, the first weekend. Uh, or post first weekend drop, etc., etc., etc. But I was still semi shocked to see exactly how hard the box office of the part two fell when you compare it to the first one. And this gives us a nice opportunity to 
delve deeper into why that may have been? Or was it just Western propaganda to infiltrate the box office numbers? That scenario, I, I know that you, you say it as a chest here, and and we play it for laughs, but even though, but still, like, that also wouldn't be a completely unbelievable scenario seeing how hard Hollywood wants to push to the Chinese market. Yeah. There's a, there's a lot of Marvel cape shit that they have to currently project in, in the Chinese Chinese box office territory, and therefore, like, trying to, to heavily push Hollywood features in, in China, even with the cost of downplaying China's own productions, could actually be something that I could see from Marvel these days, Disney, for example, attempting. Well, yeah, maybe there, this is a good discussion point. The American films have definitely penetrated the, the Chinese market from time to time in the last three to four years. Not so much. Unfortunately, I don't have anything to back this up, but it, it kind of looks like the market is manipulated by preventing the, the foreign films from gaining that uh, visibility that they have enjoyed before, apparently. And if so, well, China, of course, has its own interests to show its own movies around the globe. Well, then there are the some of these Malaysian bastards that just outright banned these communist propaganda movies. But I would imagine that uh, China has aspirations to also get their movies out in the, in, in the States. But it uh, seems like it's been a very, very small spread of market for, for their movies there. Like, like a couple of film festivals, things like that. And that's a good way, a segue into today's film. The Chinese feature that was meant or has been meant in my opinion most definitely for the global markets yes yes you're right when i started watching this i was actually expecting very heavy propaganda regarding how they are showing the american troops or the un troops if you will in this movie and it wasn't as shall we say dastardly as as one might think no it it was to be honest, it was surprisingly lenient in its yeah. approach of, of how, how it depicted the U.S. troops. So you can kind of say that at the end of a day, when it comes to the, the cinematic battle of, of Lake Changxing, and the, the whole battle at, at box office, that the real victory is the cap- capitalistic system and, and the American dollar. Well, that's interesting that you say that if you look at the comments online and there are these compilations of clips where uh, the film is depicting the the U.S. troops and most of the comments from what seems to be Americans, you know, not necessarily Americans, but let's say they are Americans, they seem to be pretty happy about their, their depiction, like as good as it can get. Yeah, and I actually can't completely fault the Americans there. Like mentioned, the depiction of the American troops for the most part is actually quite understanding, if not even go as far as to say say a positive presentation. The only kind of exception to the rule, in my opinion, is the portrayal of MacArthur. And, well, MacArthur as a general was I pretty much everybody at these days and already back in the day did agree was somewhat a pack of dicks. 
so he's a kind of an easy target to make this this almost comedical buffoon character. Yeah, uh, going back a bit about the whole background of the film. So this is directed by three people. First, I was thinking that there's maybe only one person who is really in charge, and then the rest of the guys are kind of background forces. But I'm not so sure about that anymore after reading about this. Because, first of all, we have Chen Kaige, who is an extremely well-known Chinese director, has directed a bunch of big movies, and of course, in, in the West, most known in the West for Farewell, My Concubine, I would say, from 1993. Interesting guy. He, he, I know that in his childhood, he, when he was 14 years old, he publicly denounced his father uh, to some of the Chinese revolutionaries in 1966 or thereabouts uh, because he was in some kind of a political trouble with dad. And then, uh, you know, instead of jeopardizing his studies, he decided to just give his dad out for some of his misdeeds that existed or then didn't. Chen Kaige is also a guy who listened to classical music secretly in a warehouse during the 1966 revolution. And it's a director who believes it's wrong to believe in a person as a god, from all I can tell. And then this would suggest this would extend to the Communist Party and Mao. And now we have a guy, the same guy, Chen Kaige, who is in the director's chair in this movie, which I find really interesting. And it gets even more interesting if you look at the second director of the film, Tsui Hark, known as a director-writer, Vietnamese-born, moved to Hong Kong when he was 14, made experimental movies since he was age 13, seen as one of the pioneers of Hong Kongese cinema, this kung fu action filmmaker. And I would say not exactly known for sucking to the commies, uh, he did these controversial films like Dangerous Encounters of the First Kind. Then he created his own very success, successful production company to tell exactly the kinds of stories that he would like to tell, to have less control around him. But yeah, then he goes and puts his name on a pure Chinese party propaganda project. It's fascinating. Another Hong Kongese guy, Dante Lam, the third director... The final director here. He's a director, actor, producer, choreographer, all in all a filmmaker. And he was the director of the mega super hit 2018 film Operation Red Sea, uh, second highest grossing movie ever in China. And so these are the faces, apparently, of a big propaganda blockbuster. What do you think about that? Well, you presented the the scenario, you stated that you uh, at first you suspected that the the way how the production would have run would have been that there's one guy on the director's chair running directing most of the production and then the rest the, the two remaining directors would kind of be directors more in name only sense here and i'm kind of with you on the take that that most likely is not in the end what happened because um I am previously familiar with two of these directors, that being Chen Kaik and Chui Hark. I don't remember if I've ever actually seen anything from Dante Lam. Mm. But I can kind of, in these films, I can see the fingerprints of at least Kaike and Hark. Like Chen Kaike, 
I, I see most of him. And please bear in mind that I don't actually know. I didn't find any official sources of about which director directed what in these movies. Yeah, same. Yeah, but uh, going with uh, with a uh, just a kind of a, a hunch or the feeling that I got from the film, I would say that Geiger has profiled himself through epic melodramas yeah. that that shows large scenes and and uh, has has like a ca- NPC cast of hundreds. So I would say the promise is perhaps the we- best, most well known. Example of of this type of uh, epic filmmaking, and he's also a director who who has experience on uh, showing and directing more smaller, more personal, and more intimate tear jerking drama. He is also known for doing that until the year of two thousand five, when it seems that he kind of changed gears radically and started to make this more blockbusters, more mainstream movies, including uh, Wuxia movies. Yeah, yeah, along to- those lines. I only has have followed him to 2005. Like, The Promise is the, the last film from him that, that I exists in my, my personal library. Yeah. But, yeah, Promise, The Emperor and the Assassin, uh, together, they basically all have elements that I can find in in the Battle of Lake Changing, like, I, I can see Gaige when it comes to the first movies, first hour where we have have the the dramatic elements between the characters, and also when the, we are shown before they get into the actual battles, and we are shown these these huge vistas, the mountain range, and and these squadrons just just walking through through the mountain range. I can see him in those moments. Joey Hark, on the other hand, like you remarked, is best known as an action director. Someone who kind of fuses, and who often has fused kind of fantasy elements and vuxia, and then more realistic, more hardcore hitting action. Uh, Chinese, uh, one, or once upon a time in, a, in China, the, the Quad trilogy, perhaps the in, in the West, best known example from Hark. And I actually, like, I see Hark's fingerprints in many of the action scenes okay. throughout the, the, the two movies. When it comes to, say, actually pinpointing what Lamb would have contributed into the production, I can't actually say, but knowing his, his previous, some of his previous films by the genre and, and by name, like the Twins effect, for example, which was a martial arts comedy horror film, and then from there transitioned into more more serious action movies and psychological thrillers. I would say that Lamb, I would suspect that Lamb would have played a part also in the action scenes, perhaps more in, in the second film, when they are, they have the whole. They are attacking the bridge. I would like my my gut feeling is that Lamb would have been more prominent during those fight scenes. But like I said, that's just a just a gut feeling. But I do from three directors, I can kind of pinpoint where I strongly suspect that at least two of them have been prominent as directors. Well, at least he has ha- had his hand on 
Lam on the Hong Kong police force propaganda videos to kind of ease up the Hong Kong protests a couple of years ago, interestingly. So, yeah, coming back to the movie, if I had to go on a limb, as he's an action choreographer, maybe he brought a lot of lot of elements to the fighting scenes. Most likely, uh, that would be where I would place a lamb yeah. as, as a director. Kind of a, like, co-action director with Hark. I guess this leads us naturally to the propaganda and what it is here, how heinous it is, whether it is warranted. Well, yeah, what kind of propaganda do we have here? I think there's kind of a lot to open up about it. We Actually, this might be most interesting for our listeners from China who are listening to two to film podcasters from, from the West and just seeing their views on the material as we don't dabble on Chinese cinema on a daily basis. But so, uh, a film that seems to be the product of the US-China power play of late. That's at least seems to be the Western consensus that this is a baby born out of out of the, the little schisms of late. And it highlights the sufferings of the Chinese in the battlefield and kind of forgets about the whole sufferings of the Koreans. Well, I don't recall the Koreans being in any of the battles. There might have been some Koreans there, but really it's just the Chinese versus the big bad US. Yeah. In in defense of the decision of kind of forgetting the, the Koreans from the equation here, as when it came to pre- during, during doing the backgrounds on the film, it appeared that the general gist worldwide is that this, basically the conflict that these two films depict, it was mainly, or it was solemnly fought between Chinese and the American troops. Well, I guess that might be fair, that the, specifically the battles around Changjing or, or Changjing Ho Lake would be between mostly the, the US and the Chinese. What I found as well is that it, it makes Americans look in comparison well off even with food, the, the rations, their bases, things like that. Uh, the military gear is, and it's even made into a piece of dialogue in one of the movies that, yeah, maybe someday we will get as as good gear as our enemy has. It's just a matter of time. It is, it's kind of unmentioned running theme throughout the two films. Yeah. The, of, of course, there, there is the scene where the American air raid bombs the transportation trains of the Chinese troops, which is the, the moment where they lo- lose most of their stuff, food, gear, guns, and ammunition. But after the raid, basically, the rest of, rest of the movie is just the Chinese trying to capture whatever equipment they can from the Americans and then using their Americans' own equipment against them. Yeah. It's, uh, it's it's the, what happens with the artillery. It almost is what happens with with guns. For some reason, they just, in the end, they choose not to steal the, the American firearms for themselves. And it's also what happens, especially in, in the second film, when it comes to food rations. Right. The Chinese forces have already used all, all their food rations. Now they are starving. So once they wa- finally hit the airfield, 
they, they kind of land a temporary jackpot as they can get their hands on some of the American food rations. Yeah, that is a well-known fact that uh, at least the, the CCP army didn't have as, as good military gear. And there's some pieces of dialogue that are questionable. Of course, it's coming from a Chinese perspective once again. Let's remember that. But lines about how basically the movie makes makes the suggestion that the Americans look like they are reflecting on their choices, why they came here. Maybe maybe we should think this through again. Some of those dialogues from the commanders are in that nature. And it makes America look like they started the war, actually, in my opinion, and attacked. It showcases American air bombers bombing Chinese territory when they attack against North Korea. Like one of those bombing raids is shown going across North Korea Chinese border and hitting Chinese targets. Which, uh, well, the history is kind of wonky here. Did that actually happen? You can't get two contradicting statements. Some, I strongly suspect, American sources claim that most definitely did not happen. They only po- bombed North Korean targets. And then you have uh, other sources. Don't know wo- from where, stating that, yeah, yeah, American bom- bombers did hit Chinese targets before China entered the conflict and list targets like medium-sized city and the Yalu River Bridge. On, to- on top of that, the film also, through dialogue, it emphasizes the thing, uh, the Chinese fears that once Americans get hold of of Pongyang and North Korea, they will would continue their advance over Chinese border, and then they would just continue the attack into into to Chinese soil, and that is one of the reasonings that the Chinese government here uses why they feel that they have to enter the war, like they have to stop the Americans now, so that they later on. After the fall of North Korea, they wouldn't have to then face Americans in in a China-America war. Yeah, that sounding, of course, completely ridiculous. Put into perspective as well when you know that Truman was extremely against the use of a bomb in this war. It's never, never. Yeah, then, then again, then again, in <clears throat> in the film's defense, MacArthur himself was not. In, in fact, everybody agrees that MacArthur was <coughs> demanding Truman to even use nuclear weapons. I checked in- on this. I checked on this and it seems that there is no no documentation of him ever asking from Truman, first of all, whether there would be a chance that an A-bomb would be used, required during the conflict. And secondly, there seems to be no historical evidence that he ever demanded or requested directly that, hey, we need to use A-bombs. Okay, because my sources on the, on the other hand say that that is precisely the reason why Truman eventually let go of MacArthur and replaced him with another commander. I know that they had their disagreements and, and I understand the problem was that MacArthur went public with his grievances with Truman's 
leadership or to phrase it better he didn't agree with some of the commands or thinking that Truman held at that time therefore he uh, it was Truman's decision then to kick Art- MacArthur out but you know nobody of course knows whether a bomb was one of those things that rubbed him the wrong way but I couldn't find any evidence of that okay because I on the other hand I found a lot of well not direct evidence not not like an official memo but a lot of so- sources that did make the claim that Truman was demanding using a bomb in in Korea and later on against China well the movie definitely makes its best attempt to make Douglas MacArthur look like some kind of a, as phrased by some YouTube commenter, like a Metal Gear Solid type of villain in this movie. Yeah, but the truth of the matter is, of course, he was kind of the, would I say, the Pacific theater leader, the, this extremely decorated World War One, World War Two military leader, and you name it, conflict leader and a veteran. Also dabbled in some uh, Philippine business, so, be, be it the Filip- Filipinos or be it the, the President of the United, United States, nobody who came in contact with MacArthur could, ad- could actually stand the guy. <laughs> uh, at the end of the day, I think MacArthur is seen as in positive light uh, here in the Philippines, where I'm right now. Well, he actually did make some mistakes. I'm not sure it, if it was quite mentioned in the films, but uh, yeah, he, it's true that he also didn't properly anticipate the Japanese full-blown attack on the Philippines. So, And Douglas MacArthur actually was kind of some kind of a de facto effective ruler and leader of Japan during the occupation period from 1945 to 1951. So this is a a guy who has the kind of military experience in the United States Army that no one else has and will hopefully never have ever again very interesting but uh, and you were saying that that the u.s was bombing some of the chinese troops near the chinese border i i found contradicting sources you on, found on that claim yeah gotcha that the u.s or the the u.n forces did not get quite anywhere near the chinese border yet Yes, yeah, sure, okay, the troops were at some points visible from the Chinese side of the border, but if, the, if they were up to, to the latitudes of, say, Songan, roughly, that, that's still probably like 100 kilometers to the border. They were never right at the border. So uh, it, it sounds like you have been listening to some capitalistic dogs. Yeah, damn those capitalistic dogs always messing with my mind. Ah, damn it, yeah, but I I have to cross you over from my comrade list. <laughs> yeah, but the but the thing the, how the movie presents the whole thing is that the the great Chinese civil war has now ended and this great military hero comes back home, but oh, he's called immediately back to the front lines because of the Korean War. And yeah, uh, Chinese in in the film Chinese decision to enter the conflict is something that they a would not want to do, but they feel compelled that they have to do, <laughs> and b is done out of the interest of self-preservation. I I will tell you that uh, after they 
June 25th when the North Korea and and the Kim family regime when they attacked South Korea that was completely their own decision and Kim Il-sung himself dragged China into this conflict if they ever needed to get involved well shit that was that and as far as I know Beijing was not happy to get involved into this I have no source, sources of, of to, to the contradictory, but just in order to pick a fight with you, <laughs> I, I I go with with the movie. Yeah, Beijing was in no way excited or happy to join the conflict and start the pick a war against the U.S. But they did, and they they choose to do it on their own free will. And North Korean leadership in no way track forcefully tracked them into the conflict. Yeah, absolutely. Out of the kindness of their hearts, Mao's yep, beautiful yep. heart. So, so, someone had to stop yeah. the capitalistic dogs in order to actually save the rest of the world and halt, halt the destructive spread of capitalism. Yeah, it was really heartwarming, Henrik, when, when when we saw Mao in this movie and at the porch of this, this house, uh, which I probably should know what it is. He, he's talking to his eldest son and he is so heartwarmingly telling him that yeah you can go you have my blessing with a big hearty smile you know what happened to that eldest son in the war he died unfortunately i do do know what happened to the eldest son actually it's shown in the film because by charlie (laughs) if this film does not stop itself on the dead on the tracks to just to give you the scene where that son dies yep completely unnecessary and comes completely out of nowhere and all all of a sudden in a war film where you see hundreds if not thousands thousands of people dying just as as you know faceless nameless npcs throughout the conflict then you have this one scene where the eldest son dies in a completely avoidable and dumbstruck moment. He, he runs into a bloody air raid bombing. A god of his own free will and, and dies there. And th- then the film has like, what was his name? And the music swells. And you know that this is the moment where you are supposed to tear up. Uh-huh. Just completely <laughs> dead inside. Uh, I kept wondering... Uh... Why is this guy in this Max Payne type of slow motion scene avoiding all the flying flying particles and flying pieces of glass? Why is he smiling? And <laughs> then I waited a while and oh, because, that's why. <laughs> because he knew, knew that this was his moment. <laughs> Defend the motherland. Dude, dude was so fast that he was able to outrun the flying particles and, and the flames. <laughs> And they debris, but he could not outrun a f- full-blown bo- bomb blast. So can we now jump in this very cohesive podcast episode to to the moments of the heroic CCP forces when they are frozen in position, still in a shooting position, ready to fire. I uh, okay, I don't have anything to back this up, whether it happened or I, not. But uh, it, it was a it was a nice visual. It was a nice visual. I, I appreciated the image. Please don't, don't, like, don't misquote me and don't take me in the wrong way. Please, I still need my Chinese citizenship even after this episode airs. But like, I, I, I appreciated the filmography. 
in that moment. Yeah, we appreciated the historical inaccuracies at that moment. We are... we, 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 we don't know. We don't, we don't know. I, I, I found no sources that would contradict the film's depiction that a small group of, of Chinese soldiers were so determined to, to stay on their place and ambush the retreating American forces that they literally froze to death on their position. I would I would like to find a memo where somebody wrote that, okay, now it was uh, Douglas MacArthur or whoever it was today, the, the, the general of the US Army or some military leader dude, walked from his bed, went to see some frozen in position Chinese soldiers and took off his hat in respect. <laughs> like, just, just, just put yourself in the shoes of, the, of those Chinese Chinese soldiers. Well, it's, it's minus minus thirty, if not even lower. You are absolutely like like you are freezing to your bones, almost frozen stiff. You kind of see, you kind of already feel that that it becomes harder to breathe. It feels that you have constantly just it, it's colder than it should be, and you see how at the edges of your vision the lights get darker and darker, and you get the you get the feeling that. This might be it. I might actually froze to death. You start to wonder that should I actually move a little bit to, to raise my blood, my my body temperature at least just just one notch, just one notch, nope. and then you are like no, because the Americans might show up any second now, and you just stay put. Yeah, I'm about to freeze to death. What's the first thing on my mind to defend the motherland? Except not the motherland. Uh. Someone else's, else's land. Well, carry on. But yeah, I wouldn't want to put myself in the shoes of these guys. Minus 40 Celsius was uh, was a fact of life. On some of those nights, feet freezing, unable to walk at some point. But hey, where, where, where were we? A lot of fun. Uh, there's some real hatred towards Christmas here, Henrik. And I, I know, of course, it, it's symbolizing the quote-unquote presumptuous... Uh, attempt of the piggies to end the war by Christmas and looks like China prevented that so fair enough but it, it's used many times this reference to Christmas there's Christmas trees falling there are some uh, these opinionated claims of course in the end titles instead of just showing something about the statistics of the of the war or something like that some stone-cold numbers I'm perfectly aware that this doesn't happen in the American movies either all of the time, but or even most of the time. But, you know, you could have just said some numbers and casualties on both sides and something about, like, both sides were suffering greatly. The end. But, no, there's, like, nationalistic, uplifting propaganda there for you. Then again, once again, in, in the film's defense... Those opinionated statements at the very end of the movie, I make the claim that that's actually the most propaganda that you get. Or that, that those are the moments where the film gets most yeah. propagandastic. Yeah, that's true. I don't know that there's kind of two minds about whether the whole Changjing Reservoir was a Chinese defeat or a Chinese victory or none of the above. Yeah, it's very much who you ask from by yeah. the situation. Yeah, but the, but there is the fact that uh, the US troops did retreat from the 
from the Chanjing Raw region, the lake that surrounds all the nearby towns. And they retreated quite far. They retreated... Yeah, all the way to South Korea. Uh, yeah, but uh, firstly they retreated to Hamhung, which is still in North Korea. They started to be surrounded by the Chinese forces from every side. So then they took several days to evacuate their troops from Hamhung and take the boat for three days back to the South Korea to, to the other side of the 38th parallel. And bringing with them a lot of civilians as well. It's kind of a nice touch. Yeah. Another noticeable thing historically-wise is that even the American military leadership, at least on part of some of its members, I don't know if it is, if it is the, the official stand of the Marine Corps, but anyway, so, at least some of the generals in, in U.S. Army have made the statement that the thing that truly did save the U.S. forces was the extremely freezing temperatures. And if it hadn't been so goddamn cold, it could have been that U.S. forces could have suffered even more heavy losses than they actually did. Yeah, and I have no doubt that Chinese Chinese gave a really formidable uh, opposing force on, the, on their part. And there's a lot of uh, testimonies from, from the U.S. soldiers as well that they were they were fighting like like crazy, but yeah. Come back to the whole Ham Hong thing. I, I think the whole retreat to Ham Hong that's that's clearly a retreat. Well, several hundreds of kilometers from from what I can tell, from the near the Munan Re, Ni region all the way to Ham Hong. Come on, that's a retreat. Even if General Smith was saying something like, or at least has been rumored to say something along the lines of. Hell no, we are not retreating, we're just attacking from a different direction. Yeah, it's a retreat. Needless to say, this film has also caused anger in, in Korea. But uh, I think that's enough for propaganda for the moment. Well, did you know that Neil Armstrong was also in the Korean War? Many people were in the Noria Korean War, but uh, yeah, Neil Armstrong was there as well. You know, he, he came from, from the Air Force. Uh, very much, and then worked his way into what then became to be the what's called now NASA. So, so first he retreats from Korea, and then he retreats from the moon. <laughs> yeah, yeah, quite, quite the turnover. Um, acting, the Americans and their acting—that's quite terrible, isn't it, Henrik? The the dialogue is just freaking awful. Just the written dialogue, not only, but the w way that it's spoken. The performance. I don't actually know. I didn't pay that much attention to the American acting here. It's so to your, in your face bad, in my opinion. I kind of, I, I have to confess, most of the time I was bored out of my mind in a way that... Fair. Act, actually, American acting kind of made to skip my eyes. I was checking out my clock whenever... Americans showed up. The, the truth is that for this movie, the Chinese government in no way did it go out of its way to headhunt some top-notch, A-tier American high-talent actors for these roles. No. They are very much rather unknown American actors, many of whom whose career mostly consists of being the bad guys in in Chinese movies. 
I haven't checked, but if I had to guess, these are this kind of a your select few American or American English speaking people actors on demand as as the kind of the the Western bad guys or Western whatever in your Southeast Asian or East Asian movies. Yeah, I mean South Korea managed to to nab Liam Neeson for Operation Chromite, mm. and there's no American actor of that capacity in in this film. No, but the, the best one, in my opinion, when it comes to the American cast, would have to be John F. Cruz, who is the guy who plays Major Gen- General Smith, aka the American commander that gets the most positive depiction in the film. The one who salutes the frozen Chinese. Mm-hmm. So I would say he gives the best performance. The one who gives gives the worst one would be the actor guy playing MacArthur. But that also is a performance where I do feel that the film makes makes doesn't give any leeway, does in no way make the, that performance or that role any any easier for the actor. Because even the the film kind of wants to portray MacArthur as this downright comedy movie level of a dumbass. Yeah. And e- even after that only gives him like two scenes in two films. You were saying that you were bored out of your mind or more or less during during the film or the films. So I guess let's get to that. So yeah, the, especially I would say that the the first movie but also the second movie that they, they are they are boring. And there are reasons for that. There's literally no character development for most of the time. And whenever there is any kind of character development, it's the easiest sort, kind of a stock character development. And this is the moment where we have to, in my opinion, address the fact that, yes, I know, I know, officially this is two two different movies. It's better that like changing one and two, and the, the second one ha- had a secondary title. And I know that that's how we are going to name this episode. I know that that's how we are going to present these movies in the thumb- YouTube thumb- thumbnail, most likely. Mm. But anyone listening who hasn't yet checked these movies out, be mindful that in reality, these are just one movie. Yeah. One almost six-hour movie. It has it has got, got that that part one, part two, two treatment where they have shot the whole thing back to back in one go, and then at the editing booth they just forcefully chop it into you. And and the hallmarks are all over the place. The first part starts with this highlight reel that has snippets from from the second movie already showing you. Small clips from it. Mm. The, the ending, when, when you get the, the propagandistic statements at the end of the first film, a large part of the footage that is being shown to you is from the second movie. And that is a problem. The way what, the reason why I'm highlighting it here so forcefully is the fact that that is a problem that comes into play when it comes to the characters and when it comes to the character arcs. Because the characters, the little setup the characters get, it happens in, in the first film, which lasts for three hours, 
And then at the very end of the second film, you have yeah. the little payoff to the character arcs that, that you actually managed to get here. Yeah. So, by God, if your experience is is that you check the first film uh, or the second film first, you will be you you don't know that there's a there's a big brother and little bro- brother at the battlefield. That the whole skipping stone thing at the very end of the second film that means nothing to you because because you don't have the setup. You don't know what the skipping stones means. Why it's supposed to be somehow important. You don't know what is the importance of. After the squadron has been destroyed, except for one man, and that one man comes up and and states that you know that the seventh regiment is present in in the force of one man. You don't actually know what that means if you haven't seen the first uh, the first film first. There's basically that there's all like it's not much payoff at the end. Yeah. It's, it's really lackluster stuff, but even that little lackluster payoff means nothing if you haven't first seen the first film. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, this is kind of a catch 22s situation here. We have the, the first movie, like you said, it has the, the setup. But then because the payoff is on the second movie, I can't really recommend even to watch the second movie uh, as the only movie out of this. And I, I would say that that second movie is definitely better than the first one. But if you haven't seen the first one, then maybe the payoff doesn't really work. But still, the second movie is more entertaining. Okay, because I'm completely on the other side on that argument. I strongheartedly feel that the first movie is the better of the two. I strongheartedly felt that the, the action was more varied and more interesting in, in the second one. And I would say that the location was also more interesting. The, the location perhaps was more in, interesting in the second one. But I felt that the action was not necessarily better, but not as boring in the, se- in the first one. And also, the first one still has that first hour of the movie, which is where most of the character- characterization actually happens. Yeah, that that's where you get the, the the personal drama between these these characters, and where you get to see at least partly what these characters are made of. The little you actually get that in in this film, there's actually like the, the first film has, in my opinion, a dead zone moment, which happens after the first hour, after they start to cross that the the, the the rocky field and the US Air Force starts to fly over them and they have to pretend that they are dead and lying amongst the, the rocks yeah. they need to be dead and like that scene to me is the moment in the first film where the whole character arc stuff just ends it just stops and it stays stopped until the very end of the second film. But th- that still means that you have, like, you-, you have some character. It's not much, it's not new, it's not particularly good, but you at least have something in the first hour of the first film. Yeah, it's understandable that the death of the mouse son doesn't really strike as, as like, eventful for us, or emotional for us Westerners. But then also, I felt that the other deaths of the soldiers didn't 
do anything for me because yeah sure there was this one guy who was a little ha 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 towards uh one lee about the bullets that oh i'm not gonna give them to you quite yet there was this little playful banter with between the two characters but that was kind of it and that was it yeah that was it then he dies and, and then that character dies somewhere and uh, like i fully admit that that's not much no it, it's a few lines of of Panzer between two characters. No, so but but that's at least it's something. It's two lines. So not not to be a total bitch, but maybe to be a bitch anyway, and making horrible assumptions about the directors of this movie. Just at a glance, like this that we are doing right now, it looks like this is a movie which does not even speak to its directors. In I think they're in this just for the buck. I would suspect something alongside of that also. Yeah. I don't yeah. really see passion. Because what this movie accomplishes, it accomplishes pretty well that the whole propaganda that yeah, yeah, yeah. Look at look at the Chinese struggles in the Korean War. That part, the action scenes that the 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 US bombings on the train and shooting indiscriminately on what they're supposing are dead bodies. All that, yeah, points scored there for the home audience, I believe. But then all the rest of it just falls short. Like you said, like I said, the character development, that the whole story. Well, we could make the argument that if you want to look at this film in the same way as the, the Unknown Soldier, Unknown Soldier has that problem too, if you, appro- if, if you approach it that way. Or does it? I don't side with that notion at all. Yes. Yeah, like this is I, I'm not on the on the other side. I'm I'm not even even on the other other island. There there is no uh, um, there's no a lake of disagreement separating the two of us. I, we have a whole fucking ocean. I'm a whole completely different continent. <laughs> that statement. Well, uh, unknown soldier doesn't have a story, but what it does have, it has the setting of a, of the war and it has better characters. Let's say it like that. It also has way better action. Because gosh darn, if I didn't hate the action. Is that based on the CGI, which is pretty horrendous? Which was, by the way, nominated in the... Was it Golden Horse Awards? The CCP Awards? It's it's part of... It's, uh, there are multiple things that actually bug me in the action of this film. Part of that is is the CGI. I know, like, the, our last previous episode was Sisu, and I gave a lot of shit to the the Finnish CGI in that film. But in Sisu's defense, it had, in my opinion, really weak CGI only in one scene, which is the, the airplane moment of the film, of that film. But in here, it's that level of CGI throughout the whole shebang. And this is a film that has a lot of CGI. Establishing shots made with CGI. Yeah. Action enhanced poorly with C- with CGI. Basically, action moments, bullets flying, etc., 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 made with with not that great CGI. So that, oh, that of course, is, is one thing. Another thing is that, in my opinion, the fights here, they just track on Oof. and on and there is a repeating pattern to the battle scenes in the, in in these films 
you you have the the initial attack the chinese attack the americans in whatever location they happen to be be it the first encampment be it the airfield be it the, or or the airstrip be it the, the bridge what have you but there is the initial attack americans defend that tracks on and on and on it's like a fucking duracell bunny yeah. going on and on yeah, especially that fight in the what looks like a small village in the first movie. I think it's like thirty minutes. Yeah, yeah, which just doesn't end. Yeah, and it finally ends. Well, it turns out that the Americans just summon reinforcements. This happens constantly. But basically, almost every fight, the Chinese attack, that they win the first wave, Americans summon reinforcements, and then the fight is like that. We enter the round two. Yeah, first and foremost, if not seen as a propaganda movie or something that satisfies the CCP's goals, uh, as this is like a movie that is funded by the CCP as well, this is just pure action. It's an action movie. Absolutely. It's it's more action than, than war film. Yeah, it's not only the CGI as well. I think some of the choices are quite poor, especially the ones that they utilized uh, in the first movie where there's these close-ups on Iris with, well, CGI, but then there's like these split screens and this kind of disturbing image-in-image takes when the planes are attacking uh, the soldiers when they're on the on the rocks trying to hide between the bodies. Yeah, I also hated the split-screen effect that this movie... It doesn't use it too much. Yeah. But, but it has these surprisingly anime moments in it. Like for example, the sp- uh, the split screen moments where everybody is to be an ultra badass, or when the, when the Chinese ar- artillery hits the Americans, the one guy commanding the ar- said artillery makes some type of a spin motion, like it's a goddamn Dragon Ball Z episode. I'm wondering what the hell is that? Yeah, the bullet time death of the brother. Yeah, that was also pretty damn bad. And and one thing that I also really hated in, in the battle scenes is that they are, in my opinion, cartography-wise, I felt that they were a mess. Yeah. Like, the, the film uses establishing shots to, to, when it tries to show you what is the, the American, the, what is the enemy ca- encampment, what stuff, do they, do they have tanks, do they have trucks, how they are located in the area that they are controlling and it tries to show you where the Chinese forces are in comparison to the, the Americans before the attack but those moments go over way too fast it's just a long CGI tracking shot and that doesn't really give you a clear image of what the area is and what the situation is before the attack happens and then once mm. the attack happens, it just starts to be all over the place. It's hard to say what is the direction that the Chinese are attacking. Yeah. How many squadrons of Chinese are attacking? Where is each squadron attacking? That the main attack in the first film, in my opinion, that the nighttime attack against the the U.S. campment is is a prime example of this. The situation is that Chinese are surrounding the American camp from three sides. And then they start to slide, slide down the slope, attacking the Americans. That's what happens historically. That's, that's how the attack went, if you go and look up a Wikipedia article. 
but you can't actually tell that from the movie itself. Right. Because the cinematography is all over the place. And that that is a problem that is that is a consistent throughout the film. And also also the second one. It it's impossible to say where who soldier is at what time. And where. Yeah. The, dude X runs in some place. Dude Y throws a grenade into some building. Something explodes in somewhere. Fifteen Americans die from something in somewhere. It's like constantly like that. There are too many moving parts and not enough establishing done before the fight happens so that you could actually keep a track what exactly is going on. It's just a collage of different acts of violence. Uh, yeah. Some something explodes. Someone gets shot. Somebody so- shot someone. It's just and rinse and repeat. And at some point, Americans once again summon summon reinforcements, and the same bullshit just continues. Absolutely. Yeah. So 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 roughly, what is going on? The first film, it it is about getting into the Korean War. There's the call back to war for the kind of older brother character Xian Li and then Wan Li joins the war against him but though he doesn't seem to be particularly bothered by that anyway uh, because it's for the motherland sort of uh, and then there's the big cut to the 15th of September 1950 uh, around the time of Battle of Incheon which is underway and it's just, it's just uh, like a scene after scene after scene after scene about that time period and the second film it's more about the centers on the the whole watergate bridge fight the area to to which the chinese lured the american forces to and then launched the attack yeah and in in a larger sense the first film would be the the chosen attack where the chinese forced the americans to to start their retreat and the second film would be the Chinese troops trying to stop or prevent the American forces from retreating. Right. So, yeah, if you're into that kind of stuff, there's like a five and a half hours of it. Something that could have been a, maybe a successful miniseries, but two movies of really nothing. I, I would say this is a three hour, if not even something like two two-and-a-half-hour film stretched out into almost six hours of movie. Yep. And they are also, as far as I read, they are considering, if they haven't released it already, at least considering at this point to release even more longer cuts of these movies. I, I dread to think what material there would still be left unused from these two movies. What is, what is left to be unused in this podcast is the quickies. So, the performance pedestal, who would be the actor of the night? From my end, that's gonna go to the Americans. It's gonna go to John F. Cruz as Major General Oliver Smith. Because Oof. absolutely nobody else in this cast, outside of the one guy playing MacArthur, in, in a way actually stayed in my mind. This is a toughie because I felt that, you know, I, I felt that the, that the American perform- performances were through and throughout horrendous. And 
even if I look at the Chinese performances, not knowing any of the Chinese language or Mandarin language, I could see that it seemed to be a little wooden and literary and forced and standoffish. So what's left? I'll give it to the fakes. No, was good. Well done. It most definitely did look fake. Oh, did it? Uh, kind of could have fooled me. But well, they paid millions of dollars for that, so. <laughs> Money well spent, China. <laughs> yeah, you, you, for for a moment, you couldn't actually believe that the temperature in these films would have been in anything, anything below plus twenty. <laughs> Oh, well, I have to say that the frostbite makeup was at the point. Like, yeah, I was telling to my boyfriend that yeah, it, it must be a makeup day for the soldiers. What do I know? I wasn't there. I have to put on makeup every once in a while. Uh, what worked? Uh, well, in the first film, the first hour, the personal drama stuff had potential. It could have led led into something. Could have been interesting, could have ha- ha- had a payoff. The, at least there was an attempt, and the battle scenes did have good moments. There were good individual things in battle scenes, even though I didn't really like the bat- uh, the scenes themselves. Yeah, many of them were so over the top that it kind of lost me. Over the top is is a good way to describe them. We are we are like we are watching a superhero movie. Yes, that, that's level right. of of capability here. People, some dudes, like once again, keep in mind it's supposed to be minus thirty something, and these guys are running. Somebody is running up a up a hill full speed mm-hmm. in minus thirty, carrying like like a heavy machine gun and a sniper rifle. And he runs for like like fifteen kilometers. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a lot of I don't know what's the Chinese equivalent of this, but kind of a kamikaze type of attacks. There's plenty of them. We were complaining about it in uh, the newest unknown soldier that there was, I think, kind of one clear example of that at least. Here here we have like twenty. Yeah, that moment is nothing compared to this movie. Yeah. Uh, so what worked again? <laughs> uh, I liked the. I really liked the colors in the first ten minutes of the first movie. That the hometown vibes, and happy atmosphere, and pu- pulling the fa- face of one Lee. All this kind of playful. Ch- the, the the hometown that that in no way looked like bad CGI green screen. Um, that unfortunately yes. Uh, you can tell when one is using CGI when it gets all too blurry in the backgrounds. Yeah. But yeah. <sighs> like like I I gave shit to to Sisu in the in the previous episode, but that was just just one small scene. It was the moment where the dude is do dude is hanging from the airplane, hammering his way inside. La- lasted lasted for like two minutes. <laughs> what didn't work? I think we kind of covered that. Yeah, kind of everything else. Describe the film in one word. I I say enlightening. It showed me that the truth how how that conflict went. <laughs> I say this co- completely out of free will. 
Well, it's 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 certainly patriotic. Will this film survive the test of time? I, I, I don't think so. This is going to go to the garbage can in a few years. Uh, in China, most likely. I don't know. You you, don't... you end up in some camps if, if you don't religiously watch this movie every Independence Day. Can talk from my experience. <laughs> or is this the kind of uh, film that it's kind of telling of the, the, the Chinese movie market, perhaps, at the moment, that there's no other options. So, okay, let's see this movie that has a, has a lot of gravita because it has three very well-known directors in, in China. And goddamn, if there ain't the, the latest uh, pop singer phenomenon boy playing one of the leads. And then this one guy who who also is, you know, very prominent in Chinese films at the moment. It, it, it's going to be the Chinese unknown soldier. Just mark my words. Speaking of unknown soldier... <coughs> Don't you dare go there! <coughs> There's this certain Lasse Enersen and Tuomas Nikkinen. And what I found with a quick Google search... These, these two people are in the end credits of at least the first movie. And these people, are you ready? Drumroll. Well, Lasse Enersen and Tuomas Nikkinen, at least Lasse Enersen has provided movies, uh, uh, music to Unknown Soldier. I don't see any reference to this movie in his credits on his homepage. <laughs> surprise, surprise. It's a, it's a mysterious thing. Then again, then again. Bear in mind that, uh, as far as I know, IMDb as a website is being owned by the capitalistic dogs. Yeah, but hey, it would be a good thing if the capitalist dogs would be joining this communist party movie. From the communist perspective. (laughs) Complete the sentence, you really know you're watching The Battle at Lake Changjing 1 and 2. When? <laughs> when I'm actually kicking my partner to stay awake. Did you like the film? No. Nope. Would you ever rewatch the film? No. Nope. Would you rec- recommend the film? No. Absolutely not. It's basically a big waste of waste of time. You know, it's an empty shell of a movie. Big ass directors, but nothing came of it except a lot of explosions and uh, mighty mighty action scenes, but that's it. Yeah, right there, Ritia. It's it's overlong. The fight scenes don't make sense. There is no story, not really. It aims to be at the end of a day, in my opinion. This one aims to be a war sabotage movie, something like the Guns of Navarone or or the Dirty Dozen, except. The film has too big of a cast, the fights are too numerous, they drag on too long, and they just can't can't craft into itself the, those twists and turns and suspense that Navarone and Dirty Dozen and others or, or, or Inglorious Bastards mm. have. It doesn't really have characters, to a point where I 
can't remember any character's name. I constantly was referring this uh, with code words. Like, I, I had, in my notes, my characters lists as radio, who is the guy who had the, the radio, <laughs> eyeball, who is the one di- guy who goes blind, pistol, who is the, the older brother, we have bazooka, we have please die, which is the younger brother that I couldn't stand, we have hearing oh. aid, and then we have that one asshole with no distin- uh, distinguishing features whatsoever, which is every other soldier that they have in this battalion of something like, what, 300, 500, 1500? And the sad thing is that you could actually, I'm sure you could make an interesting movie about the subject matter. There is no lack of material here. You You could make stuff here, but it's not here. It's not here. And there's also... There's a lot that is not actually here, and that's also the environment. That the movie is heavily, it's heavily shrouded into the historical fact that these battles, they went on in, in minus 30 to minus 40 degrees. So it was freezing as fuck, is what I'm say, uh, trying to say here, when, when these fights went on. That, that's kind of the main thing here. That That's the big obstacle that everybody has to go around. That, that is the most lethal element on the battlefield in the battles that th- these films depict. Mm. And like that, that film tries to, to convey this to you, that the film says as much to you. Quite often, in fact, but you don't actually ever see the effects of that code. That the film tells you that it's really cold, but on the visual level, it looks like this has been shot in a studio with plus 15 to plus 20. The, the, the breathing with these characters, it, it never actually make, makes that steam. Yeah, sometimes. And I didn't see that ever. Oh, it's there. The, the film make, makes the case that they don't have food rations and they are starving. But they never actually showcase any limitation from this. The film depicts that they lose their equipment, their guns, but you never actually see a moment where they would want to shoot fire at the Americans, but they just don't have the guns or they don't have the bullets. They lose the artillery in an airstrike at the beginning of the second film. And they immediately just seize more artillery and and cannons from the Americans in the next 30 minutes. They, they they make the remark that it's so fucking cold out there that the potluck rifles will freeze up and refuse to operate. And then the battle scene o- begins and all the said potluck rifles just operate just fine. Yeah. It, it's constantly... It, it, these are movies that constantly tell you that there's an obstacle facing these troops, but then in practice it, that never actually shows up in any way. Yeah, there's no stakes. Yeah, none, none at all. And that also harms the moments because the, later on, because this movie also tries to give you this this really heartfelt, oh, please cry now, hero death moments. But because there's no stakes and there's no characters, you don't feel anything. The older brother dies at the very end of the second film. And I was checking my watch. And that was supposed to be like almost the closing of a character arc 
of two characters character arcs that we have waited to pay off for almost six hours. And I was bored out of my mind. And also as a final insult, as a final insult, this goes to, to basically all war movies. The Korean conflict is not really interesting. Then again, that is, is a shared problem of war cinema. Like, no major conflict is really that interesting. Vietnam War, not interesting. Not interesting? Iraq War, <laughs> not interesting. Ooh. Korean War, not interesting. <laughs> Second World War, not interesting. The First World War, not interesting at all. There are, in the history of mankind, there are only, I can name, three interesting and important battles or wars. And those would be the Great Emu War of 1932... The Gombei Simpansi War of 1974 to 1978. And the Winter War. <laughs> okay. Second World War. Not interesting enough. Not interesting at all. A serious question. Who gives a fuck about that conflict? <laughs> okay, I, I get the vibe that you're not a war movie guy much after all. We have I, watched... I, I'm a war movie guy if the war movies would depict... Interesting conflicts. <laughs> like what, once again, once again I, I ask, I ask, where is my mo- movie about the Combay Simpansi War? I, I swear on swear to God, someday my boy Goody will be avenged. And he will get, get the cinematic justice that he deserves. <laughs> Boy, that would be a movie. But it would be completely in CGI. No, no, it would it would be practical. I would I would train the simpansies. Somehow. In fact, I wouldn't even use CGI blood. No, sticking through to, through to what I said back in the Cannibal Holocaust episode, I would use actual animal on animal violence. Oh, the blood would be real. But to, to say actually something in today's films, Battle at Lake Changing's defense, yeah. as, as my closing statement surrounding the movie, the discourse around around this movie has it has revolved heavily around the theme of is this movie propaganda or is it not? And that's also propaganda is also a word that we have repeatedly used today throughout this episode. We have talked about the propagandistic aspects of this movie. So to return back into that topic once more, as a final thing that I I will bring up is. Is ba- Battle at Lake Changsing propaganda? Yes. Mm, yes. Yes, it is. Is it as hideous, as disgusting propaganda that as as many of the American sources have painted it out to be? In my opinion, honestly, no. It, it's boring more than it's effective. And when it comes to the propagandistic nature of it, it's actually extremely tame. It's no different at the end of a day from what you get from from an American production, something like the TV show 24 or movies like We Were Soldiers or some other heavily patriotic American production. At the end of a day, you hear a lot, a lot about the propagandistic nature of this movie if you check out the American critics and American sources, but those are hyped, in my opinion, very strongly. Oh, and the mm. propagandistic nature of here at the end of the day, if you choose to watch this movie, and I caution you not to, 
But if you decide to do it, I would maintain that the propagandistic nature is the most exciting thing on screen here. Not because it's it's that heavy on propaganda, not because the propaganda is that that good, but because propaganda, while it 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 conveys the message that the creator of the said propaganda wants to convey. It also, it, it works as a mirror. It always also reveals something about the creator of the said propaganda. And usually the aspects that it highlights, if you read closely, if, if you look at look at the prop- uh, propagandistic piece closely, usually the things that end up highlighting from about, about the author, they are not actually that, that nice. They, they usually show the darker side of the creator. It it goes into into American propagandistic or overtly patriotic war movies. You of course you you get the message that the film wants to convey to you. But at the same time, on close reading of the material, you also notice the ne- less glamorous sides of of Americans. And and the U.S. You 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 find out find the the idea how America is is the largest superpower ever. How it has how it's the chosen people of the God. How that gives it a, a special privilege. How everybody is a lesser when compared to to American. You can have a civilian bombing that costs twenty thousand lives on a movie, but you are supposed to only cry when American soldier Jake or Paul finally bites it in the action. These are these are the things that the film doesn't intend to tell you, but if you look at it closely enough, you actually find them there. And same happens to Battle at Lake Chansing. It wants to be pro-China propaganda that is pushed onto the market, and on a surface level, that's what it is. And that's the message it conveys. But if you look at the film, if you choose to watch the movie, and if you look at it more closely, you actually see, also find more harming and more condemning statements when it comes to China as a nation. And the realization that you may find, or what, what that I found was that China really is not that different from the US as a nation. Not not really. Not beneath or, or the surface. Especially in, in the, the global political sphere. I remember that early two thousands there was a there was a lot of China hype. There was a sta- a lot of statements were made how China is this super smart player on, on global political field, how it's the country that has a fifty year plan Every political move that China makes is made in accordance of the 50-year plan. They tacti- they, every movement is tacticized with such of a long scale. They look 50 years forward before they make a political decision. And that was hyped as something that makes China and Chinese politi- uh, politi- uh, politicians superior to their Western counterparts. And there was a growing demand that we in the West would also, we, we would have to take a page from Chinese playbook and also start to, to view our political moves with a, with a 50-year plans of our own. I remember this, this discourse happening. And, well, that is true. China has a 50-year plan. It would be smart if we would have it also. Looking at this film, however, it's also 
evident that just like America, also China lives in 50 years in the fucking past. That they have a stick up their ass still even today. For a, for a, at, at this point, like almost, well not forgotten, but age-old battle. Something that you actually could and in my opinion should move past off, but which they are incapable of doing. And China is not the only one at fault here. America does the same thing, Finland does the same thing with, with its unknown, etc. So it's kinda like, like a universal problem for every nation. I'm not saying that China is somehow makes here a mistake unique only to them. But I, I do make the case that now having watched almost six hours of Chinese war propaganda, yeah, yeah, it also showcases to you that China is not necessarily deserving of all the hype that West has wanted to give to it for something like the, the, the past, past perhaps 50 to 20 years. Well, it's right what you're saying about that, that, the whole, that there's a certain level of hypocrisy if we are listening to the, to the Western or the, the American media responding to this movie very I don't know, furiously, but, but they have some straight opinions about it, that, that this is pure Chinese propaganda. But then again, uh, the film, how it depicts its enemy, as we've said, you know, it's, it really shows their faces. It technically it just shows their, shows their faces. There are moments like in Unknown, Unknown Soldier, you don't necessarily see even the enemy's faces. They're just keep kept at a distance. This movie doesn't do that. And I think also one of the reasons why they do that, while not completely really humanizing them, they make them more palatable for the rest of the world because this is clearly targeted for a like a worldwide audience. And I would say that's that's yeah. the key reason why that is. Uh, that can that can o- of course be. Yeah, I'm I'm not trying to play good guy points to China here like any more than is necessary. Yeah, like, most likely. I agree with you, most likely the reasons why the Americans get humanized here as much as they are is because this is a movie that has been meant for the the international market. Yeah, yeah. And if it wasn't already clear earlier that if you would remove the propaganda from this film, the film would still not be good. The propaganda mm-hmm. is not definitely not my only gripe about the film. It's just that it's, it happens to be a really dull film. Then, actually, actually, the propaganda might be the most interesting thing at display here. I'm looking especially, especially, especially that this uplifting and and spiritual closing text scroll of the <laughs> second film. Where it states that Battle of Sunbridge was a typical inter- uh, interpenetrating attack into the depth of U.S. defense. Typical, yeah. Typical. That's the word that they use. It was a typical interpenetrating attack, and the attack is a complete fucking disaster. Absolutely, they 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 sacrificed the whole goddamn squad. Every single man except one dies. When they try to sabotage that bloody bridge, and at the end of a day, it doesn't even matter because the Americans just fix it right away the next day. <laughs> a typical interpenetrating attack into the depths of U.S. defense. Jesus Christ, China! 
And the first movie goes at the end with the titles The Great Spirit of the War, The Resist U.S. Aggression and Aid North Korea will eternally be renewed. Eternal glory to the great martyrs of the People's Volunteer Army, end quote. And, and, and definitely the most heinous part, that was uh, the most in-your-face propaganda in these movies is the end titles. And that's kind of the taste with which you will leave the theater. So I understand the gripes in that sense. But if you look at the overall movie, well, was the propaganda really that strong when you compare it to many of the American war movie counterparts? Maybe not. No, not. And and I, I say that as a person who doesn't have a special problem against propagandistic content. Yeah. Like I, I am someone who owns as a physical copy the entire TV series 24. Ugh. And that's nothing if not pro-American propaganda. So I, I am fully capable of enjoying propagandistic content. This just is a shit content. Well, I guess we could debate whether this has more historical inaccuracies than your average uh, American war film. Because this kind of does. And then doesn't. It's also kind of a matter of interpretation. Like we discussed, it doesn't really... It doesn't tell you who was the starter of the war. Kind of avoids that, actually, conveniently. Yeah, that's... A, it It only paints the, the starter from the Chinese perspective. Yeah, it, it, so it, it states that, that for the Chinese, that they, they started to respond into an American aggression. Precisely. Yeah. So it's like... Like, clearly, they don't want to touch on the topic, who started the war, but they kind of sneakily turn it into, oh, we have to respond to this aggression. And the film does have a fair share of those moments also. It's it's not just that. Another big example from that ballpark, in my opinion, would also be the winter clothing of, of the Chinese troops, where not too much is shown to you why exactly the Chinese troops don't have their padded winter jackets as they enter the the Korean territory. And later on the film tries to make the the argument. It it shows you the one general who refuses to put on a padded winter jacket because the ground troops don't yet have received theirs. There, so he's. I will suffer like like my men over there in the battlefields. Type of situation. Then, very next scene, this with the same general. He now is wearing a winter jacket. So there are these moments where the movie makes a noticeable effort, not to mention certain things surrounding the the, the conflict. Yeah, we're well, still coming back to the, the characters. Um... There's something to be said for your average Hollywood war movie where I think that the, the characters tend to be just way more c- complex, even if the movie kind of comes off as war propaganda or is war propaganda. And I guess we could get into the complexities of how you interpret the word propaganda, uh, blah, blah, blah. But generally, definitely the American war movies... If going by these goddamn movies, these two movies that we watched, the American war movies are more interesting because the characters have more depth. There is also this inter-reflection or refl- reflection on the moments. Like, 
there are some fighters who are openly maybe already against the war or they're complaining about the war or the situations which is more interesting frankly than watching these monotone cardboard characters in in the battle of lake Changjin, where it's just about this whole thing for the motherland i don't see these characters truly struggle and what comes with the struggle like those words that the mao would not want to hear yeah the, the closest of that any type of such of a sentiment in in here I don't know if it would be like m- the moment when Mao loses his eldest, eldest son and we return back to Mao as uh, after he has heard the news of his son's demise. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I'm really like mm. I I get what you are going for. I can't disagree with that. I'm really grasping straws when I try to to look at these films. I think back upon these films and try to find a moment where it would actually attempt to do something like that. Well, to widen the scope here, wide open, Chinese movies and how they are influenced by Hollywood movies. Do we want to touch on, on that horse? Because clearly there are some sentiments online that the Chinese movies, yes, they try to be very much like the Hollywood blockbuster counterparts. Big action sets, a lot of effects, a lot of CGI, uh, and similar types of effects all across the board. Uh, so, is this something that just is, is this something that they just shouldn't be doing? Because we have already Hollywood doing that, and Hollywood usually doing it much better. Hollywood doing better CGI apparently. Somehow the CGI seems to suck in the Chinese movies that I've seen. So why not just try to do more of your own thing? Because all the all the bullet time, all the American influences are there. And you might fairly ask, well, Americans are doing it. Why wouldn't we be doing it? Why shouldn't we be doing it as a Chinese person? Sure, but I think there's something just lost here. There's a lot of that we want to be as good as the Hollywood movies. We want to reach the same level competition going on here. Yeah, I don't think that any nation, be it the China, be it Finland, like it was in the last episode, should automatically give up on the attempt to, to rival the Hollywood movies. Yeah. I, I do think that that's a... Like, like obviously, better like, the battle at like Changing. It wants to be a Hollywood blockbuster. It wants to do what Hollywood does, and it can't crack it. I don't think that it's an absolutely doomed cause. However, I do believe that that China can make an American-esque blockbuster. I do think that Finland can make American-esque blockbusters. Sisu came, in my opinion, extremely close, but... The problem, in my opinion, is that you can't take the American blockbuster blueprint and just replicate it in in China or in Finland or any other country, like, one-on-one. Yeah. You have to kind of have the interest... First, before before you make the attempt of copying Hollywood... Outside of Hollywood, you first you have to start with a, a deep interest, introspection into 
what really is is the essence of your nation, of your people? Once you can figure that one out, then you can perhaps start to figure out how you have to change the American blockbuster, Hollywood blockbuster blueprint, how you have to tinker it so that it actually becomes a serviceable version your your country's serviceable ver- version of a Hollywood blockbuster. Th- this is what, in my opinion, Sisu actually started doing. It it did stumble a bit, but in my opinion, it actually came pretty damn close to to cracking the code. Like like I said in previous episode, and I I don't think that Sisu is the only way how we can make a for example American action movie, but it shows us one way. One route, route that we can take in in order to make American-esque action movies, and that also, in my opinion, goes into when Finland tries to do do Hollywood blockbuster. When Finland tries to do superhero movies, that's that's how we have to approach the ta- task. And that was, that is my my message also to China. Don't don't take American Blueprint one for one and just try to replicate it in China. But first. Look at what really is is the essence and the spirit of China and Chinese people. Figure that shit out and then take the American blueprint and see how you have to change it. And there you go. Well, anything else or should we say or hear rather what our listeners would be thinking about these two films? I can't wait for the comment section. Yeah, come and tell us your comment on the comment section. If not, fine, fine. But you could at least tell to your friends out there who might be interested in this kind of topics to come and listen to our podcast. Tell to all of your film nerds in your close vicinity and circles. And if you think this content was extremely valuable, you could also drop by and... Give that rating on Apple Podcasts, blah de blah de blah. Eric, apart from the Chinese propaganda or the Flickla propaganda, I think the Chinese propaganda just keeps on going in the next one. Oh, God. Oh, God. <laughs> Do you want to avoid that bullet? Are you ready for more? I, I have said this, this before, and I, I will say it again. Idea of watching propaganda films... Usually, it's it sounds more fun than it than it in the in the end is in practice. Yeah, but but fine if you have something lining up, we can we can continue. I I gotta I I have a inkling suspicion what you are planning here. Yep. A- and fine, we can go with that crazy plan. But I'm already saying, if you are thinking the films, I suspect you are. Uh, let me let me say I haven't seen them, but I am already confident that the idea of watching them is more fun than the actual act of watching them. There's two ways we we could go with the the, the two films Wolf Warrior and Wolf Warrior Two, starring Wu Jing, who was in the leading role in these movies. So more of that guy, or we could look at the um, the my trilogy my people my country my people my homeland and my pe- my country my parents and each of those movies are almost three hours and they are pure 
China glorifying itself the 75th anniversary trilogy propaganda. I don't know. Fuck it. Let's go with Wolf Warrior. It's only two movies. Yeah. I don't know if if I I can master the enthusiasm to watch three. <laughs> I bet it's gonna be more interesting because there's more like a Chinese a- action movie hero guy ver- versus the bad American guy. Kind of like this, but more like a one-on-one. So it's once again China trying to to do American blockbuster. Yeah. I just can't wait. Uh, I I hope this is more entertaining. I'm I'm not getting my hopes too high. Thank you for joining us. See you in the next one. Until then. Jesus Christ, China! Yeah, God, because I know who he is. Yes.